Hello, and welcome to The Roundup. My name is Nick Saba with The Impact. Hello, I'm Isabella Martin with Focal Point News. Hi, I'm Lily Gwinney. I'm with The State News. Hi, I'm Chloe Gregg. I'm from The Lookout. And I'm Haley McDonald from Impact MSU Student Radio. All right, so to begin with today, one of the main subjects that I wanted to talk about was the new contract with Mel Tucker that was recently just proposed for $95 million over 10 years. So I just wanted to get a bit about your guys' opinions on if you guys think that that is something that MSU should be doing, as well as your guys' opinions. That is one of, if not the highest amount of money that a coach is being paid here in the U.S. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's actually really interesting to hear a little bit about like how Mel Tucker has had this rise from Colorado to being here. And I I remember reading like he is not just one of the highest paid African-American coaches in football now. He's one of the highest paid African-American coaches in sports. And that's just a crazy fact to me. But I think it also raises a lot of questions about um, MSU's priorities and MSU's, you know, sort of course of action in the wake of COVID between football and academics and student resources. Yeah, I agree. And I think it poses a question because I know that the swim and dive team was just cut last Mm -hmm. spring, was Mm -hmm. it? So why is a program like that cut? And a coach is being paid that insane amount of money at a college. I think that kind of shows where MSU's priorities are at, you know, like the fact that they would go and cut the swim and dive team and then turn around and pay the football coach, like you said, an insane amount of money is kind of just kind of a slap in the face to some students, you know, especially those that were on the swim and dive team. It's kind of like, well, what about us, you know, for sure. Yeah, I know um, at the State News there was actually a really great piece a couple weeks ago about, like, how MSU swim and dive students have been adjusting to life after their sport was cut. And I think a lot of them did say kind of that same thing. Like, it feels like a slap in the face. It feels like they just got the rug pulled out from under them. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that this week, especially in the wake of that decision, it must feel difficult to hear all of this money and all of these resources going in from these super rich billionaire donors to a sport that isn't yours. Right. So kind of talking about colleges in general, uh, sports have become a definitive part of the college experience, which means that a lot of money is, is funneled into them. Uh, I know we were talking earlier before uh, we started recording about how the, the funds are actually separate from the amount of money that, that MSU has and then the, the, the sports programs. The fact that we even need to split that is almost baffling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's such mm-hmm. a high amount of money. Do you think it could be spent better elsewhere? Absolutely. I mean, I think this, this semester alone, we've seen um, so many shortages in so many areas. We've seen um, a lack of student employees in the dining halls. We've seen having, uh, the university having to close down different Sparty's locations. And there's obviously a lot of discontent coming from faculty right now. I think if anyone is on like that side of Twitter where they see professors 
getting angry about um, how much they're paid and the work that they do. I think there's overall, like on the academic side of things and on the RHS side of things, there are a lot of people who are really unhappy with how they've been treated or how they've been compensated by the university this semester. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of things that, you know, MSU could work on and they could put the money towards a lot and instead they choose to, you know, divide it and, oh, this has to be separate, but why? Like, like how we were talking about earlier, it almost feels like, oh, it's MSU's football team, but they also have academics. It's not like, oh, like MSU, like Michigan State University with like our football team, it's kind of just like, oh, like MSU football, but it's also a college. Mm -hmm. The predominant entity has become our sports, which like is the reality of being at a Big Ten school. And in a lot of ways, that can be a really awesome thing and a really cool experience for students. And obviously it makes money and that's why it's prioritized. But it does kind of create this disparity between student athletes and the rest of us. And that's disappointing because I don't think student athletes deserve to have that treatment. And I don't think the rest of us deserve to view it that way. So it's just a crappy situation for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, bouncing off of what you said, Lily, with everything, with the shortages in the dining halls and, you know, during a pandemic, seeing a coach get a raise of millions and millions of dollars, that kind of poses another question. Like, we are in a pandemic and, like you said, have all of these shortages. Where is their priorities at? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So kind of moving right along, uh, we're going to probably switch and change up subjects a little bit. Uh, You can go ahead. Yeah. So during the big game and Halloween weekend, there was a freshman student, Brendan Santo, from Grand Valley that was visiting Michigan State. He went missing on October 29th, and it was shortly before midnight. He left Yakely, the dorm, and was not seen after that. And it's been now 19 days, so kind of three and a half, three weeks, two and a half, three weeks. And, you know, it is crazy because something that could possibly help this case break through, which is the cameras in Yakely, they were not working. So, you know, kind of on the subject before us, where is their priorities? The camera wasn't working. They said that it wasn't working because um, there were chips in the camera that had to be removed per the federal government earlier in the summer. And so they weren't ever fixed. I wonder, like, did they know the whole time that they had to be removed and they just were kept putting it off? Or was it, like, well, I wonder why they didn't. Or if they didn't know until they went to check and realized, oh, these needed to be removed or replaced right. a long time ago. Exactly. I think, I mean, that's the question, right? There's obviously a lot of bureaucracy that goes into like university infrastructure and the way that our security systems function on campus. So somewhere on someone's desk or in someone's computer, there should have been something that said, hey, these cameras, the chips have been removed. 
why why weren't they replaced? Why was there never a follow up? And that also begs the question, how many other cameras on this campus were in the same state? How many other people or incidents in general? I mean, it's not just missing persons cases. It's assault cases. It's harassment cases. How many people's issues on this campus haven't been documented because of essentially like a bureaucratic failure on the part of the university? Yeah, that's my question as well about what are the other cameras that aren't working? And I think it's so unsafe because Yakely is an all-girls dorm and the cameras aren't even working and a boy went missing. So that kind of is like a twist of everything that we know. Usually it's the girl, but now it's the boy. Mm -hmm. And his family had two searches where they had civilian searches. We looked all over campus, everywhere. Still don't have many leads. And I think it's just important to... You know, know that this boy, Brendan Santo, is missing and he should be brought home soon. You know, and right. I think all students should be aware of this. Yeah. You know, look at your cameras that night. I know I spoke to his aunt and they have a Facebook page called Bring Brendan Home, which is dedicated to finding him. So, yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot. There's obviously been a lot of social media dialogue around it. I think also one of the natural responses to something that freaks people out like this is to, you know, stress theorize. I know I did it in like the first few days. I That was one of the few things that I could think about was just going over in my head what could have happened. And I feel like that can cause a lot of misinformation and confusion. And I think it's just really important, you know, that we all look out for like these official avenues and it's so it's so informative that we have like msupd posting updates we have elpd posting updates and we have the family posting updates and obviously those are super accessible so i think it's it's a really good resource for us as students so we don't contribute to the spread of misinformation surrounding the case and other cases right and you know going back to the cameras thing i think it's it's alarming that, you know, student safety is MSU's, like, number one priority is what they say. But if you can't even check to make sure that the cameras are up and working and they I'm not sure if there's been an update, but they say that they don't believe he left campus because his car was still here. Not sure if there's an update on that, but it's like if yep, those cameras were working, is that that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If those cameras were working maybe we would have more information and people wouldn't be spreading misinformation or there would be more updates. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, yeah, it all kind of ties back to the same thing. Mm -hmm. He wasn't seen on any other cameras around. And that's the question is, are the other cameras working? Because they say that they don't have many leads. And, you know, I think that's what the public is wondering, kind of, was he seen on any other cameras? And as of right now, we haven't been told anything. And I'm assuming, no, they haven't. Because if they did, there would be a little more, like I said, information to give us. And, you know, like, it's, I know Yakely is in the West Circle neighborhood, in North neighborhood. Mm And are those cameras working? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You think he'd be picked up on at least one? Mm -hmm. Just one. to think how many people were up here that weekend and nobody saw him 
there were thousands of people up here the weekend of the big game and Halloween. And he, you said and he, he went it was missing around on the Friday. On so, a Friday night around midnight. It's not. Yeah. It's it's busy on a Friday night around midnight up here in East Lansing. So and so his phone was last pinged on Michigan Avenue and Beale Street. So okay. you know, there's that. Yeah. Kind where of it splits road. off. Yep. yep. And so that's the last known area of his phone, and then it died. And so of course the phone has to die, and that's that's just another. Right. Mm -hmm. And I really do feel for his family because this must be really difficult from being from out of town and having to come into a place you've never really been familiar with and having to deal with all this uncharted territory and have a dialogue surrounding your son out there Mm -hmm. that is full of a lot of false information or just fear and confusion. And, you know, I just I hope that they're getting the help that they need and the resources that they they deserve as they deal with this because it would be so difficult to have this happen to a family member. Yeah, Mm -hmm. of course, I can't imagine. I know the Santo family is offering a $20,000 reward for anybody that has any information that leads to finding him. So Mm -hmm. if there's any students or anybody that has seen him, I hope that they would do the right thing. And Right. If you see mm-hmm. anything, you heard anything, you know anything, it's so important that and I know, you tell somebody about that. Mm-hmm. And I know the university had sent out some communication saying, look over your video if you were in the area that night, your Snapchat stories, anything you might have sent to someone, even like phone calls, and see what's in the background because that can be that could be something. I mean, in a case where there is nothing, anything is something. Any small detail can be the deciding factor. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, Lily, I know you brought a piece that you did a feature on for the state news. Would you like to talk a bit about what you brought? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, this week's print edition of the state news has a cover feature, which I wrote back in October on student mental health and the relationship between students and the academic environment post COVID and kind of what that looks like affecting, you know, how we deal with stress, anxiety, depression, and all of that, and kind of like what it looks like from an academic standpoint. Obviously, we're all back in person. We're back in our classes. We're having these relationships with professors again that we had in the past or maybe never had at all. I mean, I personally, I'm a sophomore. This is my first time being in college in person. (laughs) Um, First time meeting my professors, which is super weird. But I think there have been changes to kind of the relationship between students and professors and how we deal with mental health and kind of the grace that we give each other to deal with mental health on our own terms in the academic environment. There are parts of mental health that are oftentimes overlooked because it's not something that is uh, evident uh, physically, you know? You can't tell that someone is going through a hard time or or someone is is having struggles without delving and in, in, into their psyches and talking with them and, and figuring out um, who they are. Exactly. And so it's very important to acknowledge the very difficult time that we're living through right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and making sure that we are being as inclusive to one another as possible. Yeah, and it's really interesting, I think, to kind of take that perspective and shift it into, like, the educational environment, 
because we know like it's not a new phenomenon that college students are experiencing mental illness and a lot of stress and pressure in their lives. That's like the tale as old as time. Um, but we also know that the pandemic has just made that infinitely worse. And I think what you said about like recognizing each other's struggles that may not be visible outwardly is really an important in in the college environment because you have students who may not look sick but really like mentally they are and all of the stressors of the academic environment can be so much added pressure and one of the people that I talked to in my article um was um oh <laughs> Dr. Alyssa Dunn from the College of Education and she made a really good point to me that like professors need to remember that Every student who passes through their classroom has a bajillion other things going on in their life, and they can never assume that their class is that student's top priority. And I think that's a really good thing for everyone to keep in mind. It's like we all pass through each other's lives at such a quick pace these days, and I think giving each other the grace to know that like everybody has their own things going on, everybody has all these different priorities and all of these different things that they have to worry about is really important for us to understand each other better and just help each other out. Right. And I feel like a lot of us recognize like we're all in the same boat. Like we're all in this together. We're all college students living through a pandemic. We're all going through the same thing. And I think it's nice to be able to recognize that in each other and kind of lend a hand. And I think professors are starting to realize that. Um, I know one of my professors, she live streams we have class in person, but she also live streams it. So she's like, if there's a day that you just can't come to class, she was like, join over Zoom or let me know. And I think opening that communication with each other and with the professor and, you know, with other college students is really important because it's it's important to be like, hey, like I'm struggling and it's important for people to say me too. And, you know, we're in this together and we're going to we're going to do it together. I uh, agree. And, you know, I know there's a few people in this room that don't have TikTok, <laughs> but <laughs> there's one thing that TikTok has given to me and shown me that I think is positive, And it's that it's normal to not be OK. Right. I think mm -hmm. there's a ton of people that show up on my For You page. And I know the people who have TikTok could agree. Mm -hmm. They show up and they're like, I don't feel my best today and that's okay and that's okay and yeah. I don't want to go to work or go to class because I'm having a tough time and it kind of normalizes this you know something that's been kind of stigmatized for so long it normalizes it mm -hmm. and it makes people that are going through something take a step back and think okay there's someone else going through this and you know they're right. like me right and that's why I say it's so important to you yeah, like communicate with each other because once you realize like you said this is how I'm feeling and you can relate to each other it it does it makes you feel better and you know like it makes you realize everybody's going through something you might not realize it but once you start talking about it that's the first step I think it's important to kind of bring forward the message of it's okay to not be okay right mm-hmm um, and 
again, going off that very, very uh, happy notes, <laughs> kind of moving forwards again to the next topic. So on Wednesday, the Michigan Regulatory Agency, the MRA, released a recall for um, products that were tested by Veritas Labs and Veritas North from August 10th to November 16th. That affects over uh, 400 dispensaries in Michigan, 15 of which in Lansing. Um, about 60 to 70% of their products had to be taken off the shelves. It mostly affected um, the actual flower marijuana, uh, not the distillate or the carts. They were not recalled, but the actual marijuana was recalled. Um, they need to check it for THC levels and apparently for some kind of mold. Oh, wow. Ew. That's a little scary. That it is can, very scary. It can be dangerous. Um, that, yeah. Some people have very adverse reactions mm -hmm. to certain types of mold, which can cause incredible amounts of disease and respiratory issues and failure. Yep. It says specifically that people um, who have weakened immune systems or some kind of lung disease and have been receiving their products from dispensaries, if they've had any sort of um, weirdness with their lungs or have been feeling a little bit off, that um, they need to report that immediately because there has been some cases so far. Have um, there been any known cases reported? Do you know? Yes. Yeah, that's why um, they even really realized that it needed to be recalled. It turned out that the Veritas Labs, um, they were like missing a complete step in the process wow. of testing. So they didn't even know about it until people were like, hey, I'm sick. Nope. They're still denying it. They're yeah. still oh. saying that we stand behind yep. our labs. Oh, wow. They say that they didn't make any kind of mistake, but... We're test retesting them, so we'll see hmm. if that's true. Yeah. That's interesting. I think this is going to be a really sort of fascinating thing to watch play out because obviously, um, like, legal marijuana in Michigan is a relatively new, new. industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we've seen, like, every industry under the sun go through a recall process. But this is kind of the first case I can think of for yeah. marijuana. And so I'd be interested to see how this unfolds over the next weeks, months, I don't know how long mm -hmm. this type of thing takes um, to see, like, obviously how the labs respond to this and if this is going to lead to any sort of government regulation or just sort of consumer protection issues. Legal action. Exactly. Will people get sued because of this? Right. Yeah. That's the question. I would be surprised if people will not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it makes you wonder because, you know, legalizing marijuana is such a controversial topic it makes you wonder is that gonna make people go back and be like oh i don't know about this uh, mm -hmm. do you guys have strong opinions on marijuana legalization yes <laughs> <laughs> through the lens of mass incarceration <laughs> right mm -hmm. that's that's a good point it's a good point yeah and i mean it, it, you can say all all the things under the sun about how um, most dispensaries that under in states that have legalized marijuana are not black owned or owned by communities who have historically been persecuted for marijuana usage or 
um, selling. But I think this could be kind of a good opportunity to draw attention to that because you're seeing this issue and you're seeing consumer protection issues. How could that maybe be averted in the future if you put sort of the business power of this industry into the hands of the people who have historically been persecuted for it? Okay. So going to the last but not least subject of this fine afternoon. (laughs) All right. So MSU announced that they have reached capacity for on-campus living. So since they require underclassmen to live on campus, they're saying they just simply don't have enough room for upperclassmen. Um, So they're saying that they're unable to live on campus. Um, So... You know, I think everybody's okay for the rest of this year um, once mm-hmm. they have a spot. But starting next year, it's it's going to be hard trying to find places to live because it's so, so packed. I have a strong opinion on this because right. <laughs> I didn't know this before coming here today. Right. And I am an upperclassman that mm-hmm. lives on campus currently. Right. right. And I would not be able to have the room that I do uh, if that does come into play. And it's something that... Uh, at least for me, would be a bit distressing. Um, The room that I'm in now is a single over in uh, the north side of campus. Um, And it's the same room I was in my sophomore year, which I had to leave halfway through the year because of COVID. Right. So I was very excited to be able to be back on campus and be able to have a room to myself. And for that to be taken away now for a lot of upperclassmen who would have originally had the first pick at their rooms, Mm -hmm. uh, it does seem like a bit of a uh, counterintuitive idea. Uh, The original reason I thought they were having sophomores stay on campus was was a monetary policy. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought, yeah. Mm -hmm. But if there are not enough rooms and so they're having to push people out anyway... why did they need to fill more rooms with under more underclassmen if they didn't even want to be on campus in the first place? Right, And I know, I think the student population increased by a lot. Yeah. Um, like they're accepting a lot more students. And I don't know if that has anything to do with if it was just poor planning or if they, but there's literally saying like, I have a quote here um, that just says at this time, we do not have any additional spaces um, to open for current second year and older students. So they're just saying they simply do not have the room. Um, you know, I find that so concerning because we pick our housing, you know, around this time, kind of last month, and they're just now releasing this. So what's the deal? Why did it take this long to figure that out? Right. And, you know, I have a kind of a personal story about the housing. My brother, sophomore, did not live on campus last year, was supposed to have kind of first pick for living um, in a dorm. Mm -hmm. And he was placed as a student that does not even live in East Lansing. So he didn't even get first pick. Nonetheless, he was not assigned a pick at all. Wow. So that was a whole other issue and kind kind of reminds me of this, of the housing side of MSU not being prepared. Right. And that's horrible. It's I wonder if they just accepted all these students and realized like, oh, we just don't have the room or they weren't prepared or they didn't think it through. But 
there's so many people that live in East Lansing and you know, it's hard to find housing. It's so it's so packed. Stressful. It is. And you know, I mean there's houses and stuff, but a lot of people either prefer dorms or can aff- like only afford dorms. Um it's you know, if you don't have a car, that's an easy option to go to the dining halls and eat. Mm-hmm. And even if they could argue, oh, you can still buy the dining hall passes. Okay, well, if you're at an apartment further from campus because you can afford that more, how do you get to the dining hall? Right. Or even mm-hmm. they see dorms as a safer option for living. You know, mm-hmm. parents sure. that have their, like, first-time college students, they want them to live in the dorms for because they think it's safer. Um I know also one of the big lines taken by the university has been that students who continue to live on campus have better GPAs and uh, greater chances of retention and graduation. Um, And I don't know exactly the background behind those statistics and what that really means for us as students. But you would think that, you know, if that was the case, they would want as many people to live on campus as possible. Mm -hmm. All right. So I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode today. And I want to thank all of our guests for coming today. (laughs) Thank you for having us. Thank you. Out to our listeners, you have been listening to The Roundup on WDBM 89 FM.